the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time to sit back, relax, and listen to Conversations with Joan. Conversations with Joan will inspire, motivate, and empower you. Live your best life now. Listen, learn, think, and decide. And now, here's your host, Joan Herman. Welcome to Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life's Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. Conversations with Joan focuses on topics that are important to your life, from health and wellness to professional development to personal well-being. Change makers join me to share their insights, tips, and strategies so you can thrive and live your best life now. Thank you for taking time for yourself, and thank you for letting us be a part of your life. Now, let's start talking. We all experience challenges in life. For some, it's difficult to express their feelings, and so they master hidden pain with substance abuse, anxiety, depression, isolation, or even violence. Today's guest, Matthew Quick, understands that pain. Matthew experienced a dark night of the soul after using alcohol and drugs to treat his extreme anxiety and depression. He got sober in 2018 only to experience five years of crippling writer's block. Matthew joins us today to talk about how he healed and what he learned. Matthew is a New York Times bestselling author of The Silver Linings Playbook, which was made into an Oscar-winning film. His other books include The Good Luck of Right Now, Love May Fail, and The Reason You're Alive. The Hollywood Reporter has named Matthew one of Hollywood's 25 most powerful authors. His new book is We Are the Light. Welcome, Matthew. Thank you so much for joining us. Hey, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. So, Matthew, I want to start off by talking a little bit about your backstory. What was it that you were experiencing in life that made you want to start self-medicating? Well, um, from an early age, even, I can remember, even in elementary school, I I felt a sense of um, uneasiness in the world um, that I think I wouldn't have called it anxiety at the time, but I think I was having you know, even anxiety attacks in, in elementary school. And as I, um, you know, got older and became a teenager, this this started to become apparent that things were happening to me inside of me that I suspected weren't happening with a lot of my friends. And, you know, in the 80s and 90s, there wasn't a lot of talk about mental health. So I didn't know I had an anxiety disorder. I didn't know... Um, you know, I knew that I was sad from time to time, but I, I didn't really think of myself as like a depressed person. Uh, but when I started to drink in college, um, it helped a lot. And I found that if I was in a social setting and I had a few drinks, I could survive in a way that um, would allow me to stay there. Whereas if I didn't, um, I would probably leave the party. So it became... Um, apparent to me that there was something going on inside of me that I didn't quite understand. And alcohol was the socially acceptable way to to manage that for many, many years for me. I've spoken with a number of people recently who have gone through recovery, and they all shared a, a similar type of story as to why they began to drink. Some of them had even said that after they had their first drink, they, they felt like huh, this is what normal people must feel like. Did you have that same experience? Yes. Um, it was more, it was just such a relief, you know, um, alcohol, you know, and I, having a drink at night after a day of anxiety and watching all of the anxiety go away, it was just such a respite. And it just felt like, I could breathe. Um, my, my mind would just kind of shut off. I remember reading in the Tennessee Williams play about, you know, the character, I think it was cat on a hot tin roof. He, he talks about drinking until he hears the click in his mind. And I, I remember when I read that line thinking, yes, like that's exactly right. 
um, you would drink until something would turn in your mind and you would be free of all of the pain and the anxiety and, and um, the obsessive thinking. Um, so, you know, when I discovered that in college, it was, it was really um, like opening a door into um, a safe space. Uh, you know, it was like an exit from, from the pain um, and, you know, I, I, again, I, I wasn't conscious. I think I just kind of in, intuitively knew that I, this felt like relief and I didn't question it much because, uh, of course, on a college campus, getting drunk is what you do. Um, mm -hmm. So it was hur hooray for me, you know, like I have this, this relief and also it's what everyone else is doing. So um, there it is. And, you know, I, I became a high school English teacher and, you know, there's a, there's a pretty strong a drinking culture amongst teachers and there is a pretty strong drinking culture amongst writers. So it was not out of the ordinary for me as a teacher, of course, never in school, but afterwards to go to the bar with other teachers and to have drinks. And mm -hmm. of course, in the writing community, it's just, you're expected to drink at all times, you know, right. everything you do in the writing community has, has alcohol involved. So it, it was something that, um, I, I don't think I consciously admitted how much I relied on it. It was something that I needed. You know, when I would walk into a social setting, I needed a drink in my hand immediately. Mm -hmm. Like that was, that was, that was something that I didn't come to terms with until my forties, you know, and in my twenties and thirties, I, I just pretended like, well, this is normal. This is everyone has a drink at the party. It's fine. But for me, it was something I needed. It wasn't something that I was enjoying. It wasn't something that um, I particularly even liked. It was it was a requirement, right. uh, and that was that was something that I didn't I didn't really understand that was a problem uh, until my mid forties. Well, and you had such a successful career as well. I mean, look at the work that you were doing while you were drinking. Do you think that that in some way it helped with your creative process? Yes. Um, I, I, I do. And, you know, I, I've recently kind of put together as I've thought about this a lot in the, the I mean, I'm in Jungian analysis and, you know, the analysis I do, I've been thinking about this and trying to go back, but I, I grew up in a very religious household. Um, and when I left that household, I also left the church of my childhood. And that is exactly when I started drinking. And so I, I've thought a lot about how, um, you know, the religion of my childhood, which was um, fundamentalist Christianity, you know, was really, you know, whatever you think about that, it was a place for me to engage with transcendence. It was a place for me to engage with the divine. And alcohol is very, um, you know, aptly named a spirit. You know, and you know, people in AA know, and Young was very involved in creating AA that. In order to beat alcoholism, you have to reach for a higher power. And so I think subconsciously, my drinking attempt was an attempt to replace the the transcendent experience of my religious experience as a child. And I think in my writing, um, I'm always trying to reach for something more. I'm always trying to reach for ecstasy. I'm always trying to reach for transcendence. I'm always trying to reach for, for these larger things that are bigger than us. And alcohol was a shortcut to get there often. Um, you know, that sense of transcendence, that sense of delivery, that sense of freedom, um, that sense of ecstasy. Uh, I could get that with three or four scotches at night. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it, it might have been a cheap imitation of that. But, you know, I, I do think that um, particularly even in the religion of my, my childhood, every Sunday we'd have communion and we were supposed to drink the the blood of Christ, which was the wine, you know, we dr were drinking grape juice in a Protestant church, but, you know, just even the fact that that was tied to alcohol, you know, mm -hmm. there's, there's, there's something there. And I think in my creative process, um, you know, creatives, particularly novelists, you're trying to do something that is virtually impossible. You know, making a living as a novelist is, is a very, very hard thing to do. The odds are against you at every step. Uh, and, there are a lot of voices in your head and there are a lot of, a lot of demons speaking to you and you know, imposter syndrome and all of that. And alcohol is a very good way to find courage. You know, I'm not saying that it's a good way in terms of people should do it, but you know, it, it does remove doubt 
And I think at the end of the day, having that escape route into alcohol really was necessary for me because I hadn't done the emotional and inner work that I needed to take care of those inner voices in a different way. Right. So again, it was it was a functional, you know, it had a purpose, and and for a while it it allowed me to to you know use my ego to kind of just pull through a lot of stuff and not look at the pain inside of me, not look at the hurts inside of me. But at some point, you know, um, if you're lucky enough to have some success as, a, as an artist. And you get some of the things that you, you're dreaming from, for. And, you know, this is a story that many people have told. You know, you, you have that day where you're sitting at the Oscars, you know, with your, your book being adapted into a movie. And you think, oh, is, is this it? You know, this is what I was, you know, I don't feel better. Like, it didn't solve all the pain inside of me. I still have all these broken places. And when you when you have that type of mountaintop experience and you realize this thing that's been driving you is not fixed by the success, it's not fixed with money or, or um, any type of accomplishment, then that, you know, for me, it led to a kind of crisis where I said, oh, you know, like external things are not going to fix the broken things inside of me. I've got to go inside of myself and do this yeah. internal work, which is really humbling um, and terrifying. <laughs> like this, this five years of writer's block were, were, were just a terrifying experience of, of, you know, not being able to, you know, blame the external world for things and kind of reclaiming and saying, no, this, this is about things that are going on inside of me and I need to look in the mirror and I need to fix these things. But that's such a great point, Matthew, because if you look at most people today, they're always looking for that external validation or those things outside of themselves, the bigger home, the fancier car, the more powerful job. It's it's all those things that once you attain, like you said, I mean, you had the ultimate experience sitting at the Oscars, but once you achieve it, then you say to yourself, well, I'm still not happy. And you're right. It is painful to go within and have to fix what's broken inside of us. Yeah, it really is. And, you know, it was, it was shocking to me at the Oscars, too, to see how many A-list celebrities with the camera on were all smiles and happy and looking glamorous. And with the camera off, their heads were down and they were shaking because it's such an intense experience and they were exhausted. And, um, you know, oftentimes these things that we think that we want, um, you know, I've seen many famous people uh, off camera you know, they're not as happy as they appear on camera. And and some people are, I'm not, I'm not trying to make a sweeping statement, but I think, you know, we live in a culture that glamorizes the external and kind of doesn't really pay as much attention to what's going on inside of individuals. Um, and I, I think that that is definitely linked to this mental health crisis that we're having, um, you know, it's it's one thing to look good on the Internet. It's another thing to be at peace with who you are inside of yourself. Um, and we we really reward the first and we, we don't even really pay much attention to the second. And, uh, you know, for me, I, I chased that dragon for a long time. You know, I, I did the social media. You know, I tried to get the likes. I, I tried to figure out, like, who I was supposed to be um, for for whatever audience. And, you know, I think you get to a point, particularly for me in, in midlife, where you kind of have that moment where you realize like this is never going to make me feel better. Mm -hmm. And when I had that moment, it was, it was terrifying because I didn't know what else to do. Um, and I think those five years were really uh, a wrestling match with my soul of, uh, you know, uh, I had to figure out a way to get humble and, ask for help and start finding a way to go inside and fix those broken places. Why do you think you didn't give up when you had that writer's block? Most people would have said, I'm done with writing. I can't do this. What made you keep moving forward? I think, honestly, I didn't know what else to do. <laughs> I um, You know, I'm, I'm a deeply introverted person. And, um, you know, I, I love writing. I love sitting in a room alone and trying to figure things out. Um, I also think that, you know, I had the support of my wife, you know, and she was encouraging me and, and I felt as though there was something that I needed to say yet. 
and I just didn't know how to say it. And so it was this kind of puzzle that I was trying to figure out that I was obsessed with. But I do think that the writing is is inherently linked to my mental health. And so I've always taken my mental health problems and tried to drag them into the creative writing wrestling ring and wrestle them down onto the page. And so all of my books are born out of that process. Mm-hmm. And so I think that um, I was continuing to fight to manifest the best of me into the world. And there are times when I didn't think I was going to make it through that process. Um, it was a very dark night of the soul, but I just kept trying. I kept putting one psychological foot in front of the other. Um, and, you know, it, it, I don't want to glamorize it or, you know, suggest that it was heroic because many days it was the extreme opposite of that. Um, but there was just something in me that just kept, that didn't want to give up on, on, on me. It was less about trying to put a book in the world and more just about trying to figure out what I was supposed to do with my life and mm-hmm. who I was supposed to be. So your new book then, We Are the Light, this is really a healing journey for you and it must be very important for you. And what do those words mean to you, We Are the Light? Well, um, I think, you know, they mean a lot of things, but without getting into spoilers in the book, I, I really think the the emphasis is on the word, the word we, you know, I think we're all looking for light when we're in the darkness. And, you know, like I said earlier, um, when I was a young man, I kept thinking the light must be out there. Who has it? You know, um, I need to find that person and earn it. You know, I, I need to go make some type of arrangement with the external world out there and, and get the light that I need. But I think that the journey I've been on, and particularly the Jungian work I've been doing, I'm realizing that, oh, no, no, the light is inside of all of us. You know, it's we have it within us. Like, we are the light. It's not something else that's external out there. It's us. Like, it's it's on us to do this work and to figure this out. And you know, a part of my healing journey, you know, when I was drinking a lot, um, I would get angry and I would blame my problems on other people. And I would try to paint myself, you know, mentally, if not, you know, or privately, if not publicly as some type of victim. Well, mm-hmm. this must be because this happened in my childhood, or this must be because I'm not the right type of person for the zeitgeist right now, or this must be because these types of people don't like me. But really, um, that was all just nonsense. And uh, really what it came down to is I didn't want to look at um, my shadow elements, the things that were keeping me from making connections in the world. It was it was always me, you know, and that that is both a, a really humbling and awful realization. But it's also an incredibly empowering realization that, you know, well, you know, I was also an alcoholic and drinking too much the whole time, too. So maybe that had something to do with you know, me not obtaining the things or making the connections that I want. Um, and also, like, having a bitter, resentful attitude, however you, you mask that, that, that creates a certain energy that you project into the world. And and uh, what I've been learning through the Jungian work I've been doing is that, you know, the, the face you put towards the world is often the face that, that is reflected back to you. And it's simple, you know, even on book tour, I've been, I don't like airports at all. And I've been in a lot of airports the last um, couple of weeks. And I've been really practicing, you know, not going into the airport with the attitude of I hate being here, but going into the airport and saying, you know, everyone's in the same situation. Let me try to have a nice conversation with the people around me. Let me try to smile at people. Let me try to be polite. And I can't tell you how much that has radically transformed my airport experience. All of a sudden, I'm finding people are being nice to me and smiling back at me. And, uh, you know, it's not 100 percent, but, you know, this experiment that I've been doing really has underscored the fact that, you know, the attitude that I'm bringing to situations is often creating the situation um, or at least coloring the situation. And that was something that I really didn't see, um, you know, when I would go to the airport and immediately go to the bar and drink three scotches before I got on a plane or whatever, you know, um, Mm -hmm. this this is a new thing for me. And it's very empowering. Um, It it requires being humble. With the way you're feeling now, Matthew, with the work that you've been doing, do you still have the desire to drink? Do you, are there times when you fear you may relapse? You know, it's interesting. I had a dream last night um, where I had a drink, and I felt extremely guilty about it in the dream. And I woke up thinking, why did I have that dream? You know, we do a lot of dream analysis and, and Jungian analysis. I, I don't 
consciously have that, um, you know, um, yearning to drink. Like I can be in a bar or I can be around other people who are drinking, but I often have to have a seltzer in my hands. It's, mm -hmm. it's a weird psychological thing that um, if I'm around people who are drinking, I will consume a massive amount of seltzer, which is interesting. Mm -hmm. I think there is some part of me that still yearns for that escape into transcendence, that, that quick fix. Um, and so I, I monitor it, you know, and I, I'm aware of it. I don't think it's something that ever goes away. Um, but I, I try to have a healthy relationship with that, that part of me, you know, that shadow side of me and respect it. And what's going on now with your creative process? Do you feel that it's opened up again? Yeah. Um, I, I don't know that I would use the word open up. I feel like I'm being, I'm being receptive again. Like, um, it's almost like if I'm an antenna, I'm, I'm receiving the frequency again, you mm -hmm. know, I've fixed that antenna um, and so, yeah, I'm working on this screenplay for We Are the Light, and I have another novel I'm working on. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm trying to really monitor my relationship to those projects and not fall into old, old traps, but it, it's going well. And I feel like it's going at, at the pace um, that it should be going. And I'm trying to be grateful for the work that's in front of me and, uh, Again, just keep putting one foot in front of the other and, you know, seeing what shows up, what opportunities and being very grateful for them. But I have to say that in my sobriety now, I, I do find that my my relationships, my professional relationships have really um, deepened in a very surprising and beautiful way. And, you know, I, I feel the clear, the more clear I get and the more conscious I am of what I'm putting out into the world, uh, I feel that other people... Um, who who work with writers such as me are, are, are really kind of they're, they're they're seeing that they're getting that frequency and the right people are showing up in really great ways so it's been it's been a positive experience that way and um you know as as i go i'm four and a half years sober now as i keep going down this road i, I see um so much of what i was missing out on earlier or so much that i just didn't have uh you know a, a sober appreciation for so it's been good and Matthew, what do you hope people take away from We Are the Light? You know, people have been asking me this. The first time uh, um, someone asked me this about a month ago, I, I really paused for a second and I thought about this. And I, I just kind of spontaneously said, uh, I want readers to, to know that they are worthy of receiving and giving love. And I think the book is about radical love, um, you know, in, in this time in our country, we're talking a lot about power. And, you know, those conversations are really important, you know, and I think we have to have conversations about power. But I think we also need to have conversations about love without relegating it. You know, I think we have to keep them on an even scale there, you know. And, and I think sometimes as we talk about power, we kind of relegate conversations of love and and so I think that this book is an effort to restore those conversations, to lift them up a little bit, um, because I think we are all worthy of giving and receiving love. And I think that that is, is something that um, needs to be underscored these days. The book is We Are the Light. If you would like to get more information about Matthew and his work, you can visit MatthewQuickWriter.com. Matthew, thank you so much for spending this time with us. I really appreciate you sharing so much of what you've experienced, and I truly believe it's going to impact so many lives, and I'm honored that you were here to share this with us. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back. you feel lost on your journey to health and happiness, then let us guide you on your path, personalized actions towards health. Your path is a series of choices you act on every day. We guide you on a personalized journey of dietary, exercise, genetic, supplement, and lifestyle choices that lead you to optimal health and happiness. Often taking the road less traveled leads to liberation. Your path is personal. Your journey, like you, is unique. Take action today. Head to bestpathforme.com. Again, that's bestpathforme.com. 
An invitation to appear on a radio show or podcast provides you with the opportunity to showcase your knowledge while promoting yourself, your products, and your business. It can elevate you as an expert, boosting your reputation, but only if you make a good impression. As a producer and radio host who has conducted more than 2,000 interviews, I have experienced all kinds of conversations. Some are great and leave the audience wanting more, while others are uninteresting, significantly diminishing the guest's appearance. In my training program, It's Your Time to Shine, I provide valuable information that will empower you to make media appearances more impactful. You work hard to get the booking, so don't waste the opportunity because of a lack of skills or preparation. To learn more about how I can help you shine like a pro, visit cyacyl.com slash media training. That's cyacyl.com slash media training. It's time for To Your Health. Joining me is Dr. Andrew Weil, a world-renowned leader and pioneer in the field of integrative medicine. He's the author or co-author of several best-selling books. Welcome, Dr. Weil. Thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Doctor, your work has literally saved countless lives. You're a pioneer in integrative medicine. In your opinion, what has happened in medicine from the days of our grandparents who used mustard packs and home remedies and the doctors who looked at the whole person to where we've been in recent years? Well, you know, I think we've uh, lost confidence in the body's own natural ability to heal itself. We've become increasingly reliant on expensive technology. And especially we've come to think that drugs are the only legitimate way of treating illness. And the rise in the use of drugs, both prescription drugs and over-the-counter, I find very alarming. And, you know, Doctor, so much of how we live our lives today is, is making us sick. And there's no question about that. And one of the biggest factors that many people don't pay attention to is is what we put in our mouths. So it's so much different today than when I was a girl. I mean, I remember going out to eat was actually a treat and it wasn't yep. the norm. And, and now we've reversed it where a home cooked meal is a treat. Why is the majority of meals being fast food takeout such a bad idea? You know, most people today are not eating real food. They're eating industrialized food-like substances, you know, highly manipulated, processed, refined food. And this is really what's causing us lots of problems. Uh, this kind of food gives us the wrong kinds of fats, the wrong kinds of carbohydrates, and not enough of the protective elements that are found in fruits, vegetables, herbs, and spices. You know, as you say, same for me. When I was growing up, our family always sat down to at least two meals a day that were cooked from scratch. And eating out was an occasional thing. We didn't eat much packaged food. Uh, that has changed drastically. And when I talk to people about why they don't make food themselves, the usual answer that I get is they don't have time or they don't know how. What would you say are some of the most beneficial herbs that we should be incorporating into our diet and why? Well, I, you know, I've developed an anti-inflammatory diet. I think this is the healthiest way to eat because containing inappropriate inflammation is your best overall strategy for good health and longevity. And two of the most powerful natural anti-inflammatory agents are ginger and turmeric. Uh, we're familiar with ginger. We're less so with turmeric, the yellow spice that's in yellow mustard and curry powder. I th I'm also a big fan of garlic. Cinnamon lowers blood sugar. Uh, red pepper, chili peppers stimulate circulation and metabolism. Actually, most herbs and spices contain unusual compounds that are protective of our health. You know, doctor, you'd love me because the minute I start to feel like something's coming on, I begin to eat raw garlic. <laughs> Good. <laughs> that is an old home remedy. Garlic is actually a very powerful, natural antibiotic. It kills uh, bacteria fungi, viruses, also lowers blood pressure somewhat, lowers cholesterol. It's a very good overall tonic and raw is best. So you want to add garlic near the end of cooking, use it raw on salad dressings. And here's another simple tip. The, the, uh, the chemical in, in garlic that's responsible for these beneficial effects is called allicin, and it forms on exposure to air. So you want to crush garlic, put it through a garlic press, and let it sit for 10 minutes for the allicin to form before you add it to food. If you wait that amount of time and then add it to food you're cooking, the allicin will be stable. Now, you just mentioned inflammation being a problem today, and you wrote a book called Healthy Aging. We've all been doing a tremendous amount of damage to our bodies, so is it too late for us to reverse the damage that we've done? No, it's never too late. And at any point in your life that you begin to make changes that support the body's healing functions, you 
reap those benefits. So if you stop doing the things that are producing damage, you start doing the things that are helpful, immediately you get benefit from that. Doctor, thank you so much for being here. As Dr. Mark Hyman said when he was a guest on the show, it really is time for us to start to visit the pharmacy, F-A-R-M, instead of the pharmacy, Uh P-H-A-R-M. So thank you so much for being here. You're very welcome. We'll be right back. You've put your heart and soul into writing a book. So, how do you reach your potential readers? Introducing the Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life book club, created for books that change lives. A book featured gets recognized. For more information, visit cyacyl.com slash book club. This is WNYM, Hackensack, New Jersey, New York City. back to Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for staying with us. Are you looking for ways to jumpstart your journey to better health, happiness, and a longer life? Today's guest, Dan Butner, has traveled the globe where he's met and cohabitated with people of all ages and experiences to better understand how the way they live contributes to their overall health and longevity. Dan is the founder of The Blue Zones, through which he has revealed secrets of the world's happiest places. Welcome, Dan. Thank you so much for joining us. What, what, what a treat to be here. So, Dan, your work has been around something called Blue Zones. For those who may be unfamiliar with the term, what is a Blue Zone? So, uh, about 20 years ago, on assignment for National Geographic and with a grant from the National Institutes on Aging, we set out to, in a sense, reverse engineer longevity. So, instead of looking for the answer to living a longer life in a test tube or Petri dish, uh, we hired demographers to to span the globe and identify areas where people are living statistically, verifiably the longest. In many of these places, uh, people are making it to their hundreds at the highest rates. They have the highest life expectancy. But mostly, they're avoiding the diseases that foreshorten our lives, like diabetes and obesity and, and heart disease and dementia. So we know these people have achieved the outcomes we wanted and the The Blue Zone Project really set out to find out exactly what these people are doing and distill it in a way that, you know, people back home can actually put to work in their lives. And where are the Blue Zones located? The longest-lived women in the world are in Okinawa, Japan. The longest-lived men are in the highlands of Sardinia, Italy. We found an island in Greece called Ikaria, where people are living eight years longer but without dementia. In the Nicoya Peninsula of Costa Rica... We found an area where people are are reaching a healthy age 95 at about twice the rate of Americans are, spending one-fifteenth the amount we do on health care. And then in America here, we found the longest livers among the Seventh-day Adventists in Loma Linda, California. After studying these people, what have you learned? What do they know that the rest of us don't? You know, the ironic answer is nothing. And that's the point of this own challenge, because... People who actually make it to 100 are not trying. They're not on some heroic diet or, or uh, doing CrossFit or calling an 800 number, buying supplements. Uh, they're living their life. And the key insight here is that um, if you want to live longer, don't try to change your behavior because you'll probably fail in the long run. The secret is to shape your environment so the healthy choice is the easy choice which is not only how people in Blue Zones achieve uh, making it to 100, but uh, it's the premise of the Blue Zone Challenge, how to set up your, your, your life so that longevity ensues. Tell us about the Blue Zones Power 9. Yeah, it's, the idea was that we found the common denominators, nine common denominators among the people who actually live the longest. And we arrived at this through doing meta-analysis and using epidemiology. So no matter where you go in the world and there are long-lived people, first of all, they're eating mostly a whole food, plant-based diet. Very high in, brace yourself, complex carbohydrates like beans, nuts, greens, and grains. We know they can identify their sense of purpose. People who have a sense of purpose live about eight years longer than people who are rudderless. They put their family first. They tend to belong to a faith. We know that adds four to 14 years. They practice sacred daily rituals like prayer, meditation, and even taking naps, which would reverse stress. And they have strategies for setting up their kitchen 
So they're mindlessly eating fewer calories. And therein lies, I think, the big idea. So, Dan, you claim that if a person is overweight, suffering from diabetes, heart disease, or even several kinds of cancer, it's probably not our fault. What do you mean by that? Well, most of us were around in 1980. In 1980, 15% of Americans were obese. Today, it's over 45%. So think about that. We have three times more obese people today. And is that because uh, we've lost discipline or somehow we have less self-control than people did when Ronald Reagan was in office? And my answer to that is no. But what, it, what has changed is our environment. Uh, we, uh, there are 20 times more fast food restaurants than there were in 1980. Over 50% of every retail outlet in America, from where you get your uh, tires changed to where you buy your diabetes medicine, force you through a gauntlet of uh, soda pops and sugar-sweetened uh, candies and chips. And, you know, we are genetically hardwired to crave fat, crave salt, and crave sugar. Uh, and, but historically, uh, through evolution, we lived in an environment of scarcity and hardship. And now we live in this toxic food environment that just pushes these ultra-processed, meaty, cheesy foods in our faces and it, it's our discipline, it, it overwhelms discipline, it overwhelms our ability to make good choices. And what we do in the Blue Zone Challenge is at least help you set up your immediate environment so the choices are positive. You know, listening to you, I'm probably going to date myself, but I've lived through the time when the things you mentioned, going out for fast food or something, that was a treat. That wasn't the norm. So, you know, I, I think it's probably going to be reclaiming some of those things back, cooking meals and, and you know, reclaiming the things that our parents did. So you make a really good point. Uh, people in blue zones, they treated themselves. They had festivals and on Sunday after church, they... They ate some meat, but on average, they're eating meat only five times uh, a month. Uh, sweets for resolve for, for special occasions. You know, we eat 1,100 meals a year. And what I uh, submit to people in the Blue Zone Challenge is treat yourself 100 of those meals. But the 1,000 other meals where you're just getting up in the morning, getting food in your belly or powering through the day, that let me help you engineer those those thousand meals that we aren't all that important so that they're 15 or 20% healthier. And you'll live longer because of that. If you're eating a whole food plant-based diet, you can expect to live about six more years than eating the standard American diet. And those years should be without disease. Dan, many of us go from one diet to another, especially this time of year when we start out strong, but before long we fizzle out and tend to fall back to our old patterns. But what you're challenging us to do is to enact change that is more sustainable. Yeah, not a lifestyle. It's, it's a, how to shape your surroundings. So we know, I know I've worked for National Geographic. I've done the research. The most successful diets uh, ever invented fail for 97% of people within two years. And I've learned from studying longevity now for 20 years that there's no short-term fix. You have to be doing the right thing and avoiding the wrong thing for decades to avoid getting heart disease and diabetes and cancer, these diseases that over 85% of Americans have right now. So what the Blue Zone Challenge does is it marshals in about 30 evidence-based ways for you to set up your home, your kitchen, your bedroom, your work life, your social life, which is very important, we can talk about that, and to sense your internal life so that the healthy choice is the default. And you don't have to Take the Blue Zones Challenge, put four weeks into it, we'll take you by the hand, and after that you can forget about it. How do the tests that you include in the book help us change? So uh, let me tell you something for sure. If you can't measure it, you can't manage it. So with Blue Zone Challenge, we have a QR code there that will take you uh, right to a sophisticated algorithm called the True Vitality Test that will calculate your life expectancy and tell you exactly diagnose you and tell you what you could be doing to live longer and then it'll help, help you set up your environment. Uh, you know, and, and not, you, people used to think that weighing yourself was a bad idea. Not true. We know that uh, especially women, but it works for men too, who step on a scale every day after uh, five years, they weigh about 12 pounds less than people who don't step on a scale. 
So part of the Blue Zone Challenge is to put a bathroom scale in your bathroom, in your way, so you're stepping on it every day. Can you share with us a few of your favorite recommendations from the book? Yeah, this is going to be counterintuitive and it's going to seem hard, but let me tell you, it's the best thing you can do. We know that if your three best friends are obese or overweight, there's about a 150% better chance that you'll be overweight yourself. So the Blue Zone Challenge takes you through a process, and this is hard for people in the middle age, middle ages, to uh, find, uh, we call it a Blue Zone Buddy, or the Okinawa's called a Moai, a small group of people who will take the challenge with you. And if you proactively bring people in your immediate social circle whose idea of recreation is walking or playing pickleball, who care about you on a bad day, uh, who naturally plant-based food and know how to make it delicious, that is measurably contagious. And because friends tend to be long-term adventures, they have a long-term influence on you, and we know that's measurable, uh, that's one of the best health strategies you can make, though, instead of starting a new diet, uh, we want you to make a new friend or uh, enrich in a friendship that you already have and take this Blue Zone Challenge with them. And Dan, we've been talking about the positive things we can be doing, but what are some of the no-nos? What are some of the things we should learn to avoid? So in the Blue Zone Challenge, we have uh, the four foods you should always have on hand and the four foods you should never have on hand. So we're not saying you can't treat yourself out of the house, but you take care of about 70% of the problem if you're not bringing junk food into your house. And the worst offenders are, number one, soda pops. Sugar-sweetened beverages, the biggest source of of, um, uh, refined sugar in the American diet. And I hate to say that also includes fruit juices, not good for you, and um, uh, and these sort of power drinks. The second food is uh, processed meat, your lunch meats, your hot dogs, your bratwurst, etc. The World Health Organization puts those in the same category as cigarettes as a known carcinogen. Packaged sweets. Not to say that you shouldn't uh, treat yourself once in a while, just don't bring those into your house. And then finally, uh, salty chips, uh, even potato chips, which I'll admit to you right now, I eat potato chips, but potato chips are most highly uh, associated with obesity. So uh, you want to step out to a friend's house or enjoy a, you know, a small bag of potato chips every now and again, do it outside your house. It'll make a big difference and it doesn't require low power if you can't reach them. You know, sometimes we feel like there are so many things that are outside of our control, but what you're teaching us is that we have tremendous power over the way we live. Every person listening right now has control over their kitchen. And Blue Zone Challenge gives you a dozen ways to set up your kitchen so you'll mindlessly consume uh, 150 fewer calories every day, and the calories you do eat will be healthier. We've all been through a lot with the pandemic, and many people have been looking for ways to boost their immune system. What you're teaching has the added benefit of doing that. I wrote a story for National Geographic not long ago on the uh, diet of longevity. And one of the biggest findings is that our microbiome, those 100 trillion bacteria in our gut, which weigh, by the way, about 8 pounds, they provide something for us called short-chain fatty acids, which... Uh, keep our immune systems finely tuned. It mutes inflammation and even makes our, our mood better. The only thing those healthy bacteria consume is fiber. And the standard American diet, your pizzas and burgers and pizzas have little or no fiber. The Blue Zone diet shows you how to make healthy, uh, fiber-rich food absolutely delicious. Through mostly soups and stews. You don't even realize you're, you're getting the best supplements in the world by eating a hearty bowl of, of uh, my Sardinian minestrone, for example. The book is The Blue Zones Challenge, a four-week plan for a longer, better life. Dan, where can our listeners go to get more information about you and your work? I love it when people uh, follow me on Instagram. I'm at Dan Buechner, and if anybody has questions, I answer everyone personally. So, at Dan Buechner. And Dan, in our final moments, what's the takeaway? What would you like to leave our listeners with? If you want to be healthier or happier this year, don't try to change your behavior because you'll fail in the long run. Change your surroundings. Dan, thank you so much for joining us. It has been a pleasure having you on the show. It's an honor. Thank you. This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Breakfast. It's the most controversial meal of the day. 
Some say it's the most important, and some say you should skip it. Here's the thing. By definition, everybody has breakfast. It's simply the first time you eat on any given day. Expanding how you think about breakfast is key to making healthier food choices, no matter what time of day you have your first meal. In America, we're inundated with marketing from an entire subset of the food industry about breakfast foods. They're mostly processed and carb-laden, but even natural choices go heavy on fruit, light on veggies, and rarely get past a protein choice of eggs or pork. Now, while I appreciate that some people may not want to tackle a mackerel first thing in the morning, there's no reason that foods we consider to be lunch or dinner foods can't also be breakfast foods. So here's my challenge to you. This week, add some veggies to your first meal of the day and try a protein that you consider to be for dinner at breakfast time. By reducing carbs in your first meal, many people find that that meal tides them over longer. And adding veggies into breakfast is a great way to get in more of the good stuff. I'm Julie Sloan, certified health and wellness coach with Well and Grounded Lifestyle Healing. I help people transform their relationship with food and health through a 90-day challenge where we focus on mindset, nutrition, and food psychology. Get tips and find out more at wellandgrounded.com. What is auditory stimulation? Hi, I'm Allison Ayati. I am a musician, sound practitioner, and the creator of The Sound Life, an app for relaxation and meditation through sound and music. Your auditory system is a system that allows you to hear. Any sound that triggers the auditory system is auditory stimulation. Sound is vibration and information. What kind of information can you gather from listening? As the cold season sets in in the northeastern United States, we hear fewer birds because many of the birds migrate during the cold northern season. The lack of bird song tells us winter is here. When the weather begins to warm up in a few months, we will hear an uptick of bird songs. That tells us spring is approaching. You may not be aware of it, but you are listening all the time. The quality of the sounds in your environment affect your health and well-being. Immersing yourself in sounds that elicit a stress response, like traffic and construction noise, can negatively impact your health. Likewise, immersing yourselves in sounds that elicit a relaxation response can positively impact your well-being. Consider the quality of the sounds in your environment and how they influence your emotions, mood, ability to focus, and your productivity. I'm Allison Ayati, and I want to teach you how to use sound to improve your health and well-being. To learn more, go to livingthesoundlife.com. Sound meditation is not a replacement for medical or psychological intervention. productive life, but sometimes we just need a little help. Our Coach on Call experts provide strategies to help you live your best life now. Joining me today is Emmanuel Lovisoni, a certified health and life coach who has helped people experience breakthroughs in their health and lives. She's the author of the book, Healing Through Nature's Medicine. Emmanuela is here today to discuss vitamins. Welcome, Emmanuela. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi, Joan. So happy to be here. So, Emanuela, if we've learned nothing else over the past two years, we've learned about the importance of vitamins and keeping our immune system in top functioning order. What are the different types of vitamins that we can take? So there's basically uh, two forms that you actually can take. One is the synthetically and chemically made supplements that we buy in health food stores, or we can actually get our vitamins and minerals from whole food sources. So if you don't read the names of foods on labels that make up the supplement, then it's not going to be a good supplement. You don't want to read things like A, B, C, zinc, etc. You want to read kale, algae, bee pollen, celery, etc. So then the type of vitamins that you were saying we get in a supermarket that, that say like the amounts of zinc and things, those are the type that you believe we shouldn't be taking. Absolutely. Yes. Why? Well, because of the fact that number one, when you take too much zinc, you can actually block the absorption of copper and selenium. The same thing when people take a lot of vitamin C, you actually can also block the absorption of selenium in the body. So then you believe that we should be getting our vitamins through natural food sources. Yes. So when we get them, naturally through food sources. How do we know how much we should be taking? When you get them from whole food sources, the body will take what it needs 
and, and absorbs that. And then it just rids it right out of the, the elimination process. So you're not building up all of these synthetically made chemicals in your body. The body knows how much it needs. So we eliminate that risk then of taking too much of something because if you're, let's just say you eat too much spinach, your body will know how to eliminate that. Absolutely. Right. Okay. So then the best way in your opinion is to get our vitamins through natural food sources. When we take it that way, does our body do its job better than if we were to take them from the bottle? Yes, because you really can cause a lot of damage when you take them synthetically. You know, you can't start to play the game of picking and choosing single vitamins and single minerals to take. You're really playing a dangerous game that can really cause terrible chemical imbalances in the body. What are your thoughts on some of those food and veggie powders you can get as a meal supplement? If they are derived from dehydrated superfoods, then I'm a fan. When they don't have any additives, preservatives, fillers, I I actually do drink one myself, actually a few of them, and they are superfood-based. Is there anything else you'd like to add? You know, nutrients cannot work well in the body when taken in an isolated form. All nutrients work as a team to build and support the health. So nature has always been the best manufacturer of our foods and the best teacher if we care to listen to her lessons. The body understands nature, natural law. Just give it the full range of good foods and the whole food supplements, and it knows what to do to create optimal health and vitality. If you would like to learn more about Emanuela and her work, you can visit embodyvitality.net. Or as always, to hear more from Emanuela, you can visit our website, cyacyl.com slash Emanuela. joining us, I hope you found the show informative. At Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life, we believe that knowledge is power. Take what you've learned, apply it, and live your best life now. Remember that the information provided is the opinion of our guest and should never replace the advice of a professional who knows your personal situation. If you'd like more information, visit our website, cyacyl.com. That stands for Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life. While on our site, listen to past shows on demand, read the digital magazine, sign up for our mailing list, and be sure to follow the show on social media. Until next time, this is Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.